Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. We are your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq. I'm here, and that's a little loud, probably. Oh, it's fine. I don't. That. I don't care. It's fine. We're gonna. We're gonna keep today. We are joined by a special guest, Josh Cook. Josh, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a paramedic here in Maryland. Uh, I've been doing this whole shebang since 2007 when I first got my EMT. A long time. 15 years ago it seems, or lo- seems like a long time. Uh, bounce my way around the nation, volunteering, being in the army, working. Uh, I'm now a paramedic as of 2016. I work for a local department in the D.C. metro area where I'm a field provider and I also teach in our paramedic program. Fantastic. And tonight we're going to be talking about the critically unstable patient protocol or the crashing patient protocol, which is something new to the state of Maryland. It may not be new to everybody listening, but it is a great concept. And it kind of leads me off with a question for Josh. And that is, Josh, if I am two minutes away from the hospital and I have somebody in respiratory extremis or they're crashing and they just look like crap and... I think they're going to die. I should just throw them on the stretcher and beat feet to the hospital. Is that correct? As I said in my uh, my rollout of this for the state, you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so this patient is your critically unstable patient or your crashing patient or that patient that you get that uh, front door look, they're sick. Uh, so this patient, you're going to want to work them up on scene. You're not even going to want to move them out of the house. You're going to want to take care of whatever their primary ailment and insult to injury is there. If it's a respiratory case and they need to be cpap let's start doing it in the house. If they need meds, let's start doing it in the house. If it's a cardiac case, uh, they are bradycardic, they're in a block, they are tachycardic, they're SVT, uh, VTAC. We're going to be treating them on scene. We're not going to be, hey, let's get them on the stretcher real quick and we'll do everything in the unit on the way to the hospital. Sir, do you have the audacity to tell me I should take my equipment into the house? Yes, 100%. <laughs> it's funny because I, um, my, my wife's a nurse at uh, one of our local hospitals in the ED, and I know several other nurses, and one of the biggest pet peeves they have is people say, oh, it's only five minutes away from the hospital, so I didn't get an IV, I didn't do an EKG, I didn't put them on CPAP, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. And to me, that's always been completely unacceptable. And now, here in this state anyway, we now have a protocol that says that is unacceptable. But it doesn't even matter that it's a protocol because what we should be worried about is good medicine. So Let me, ask you, let me ask you guys this. Where do you think that started? Like, I mean, I imagine that the, the, our predecessors didn't want to cause harm. So what, what do you think the origin is? I think, I mean, I think the origin of it is that we used to not be able to do a lot of stuff. And the idea was that the hospital is this almighty higher level of care that can do everything and fix every problem that we can't. 
And if somebody's really sick, they need to go to the hospital. But over the past 50 years, we've been given tools that allow us to alleviate a lot of these issues. We still see this, and it's gotten better, in my experience, with kids, particularly kids in cardiac arrest. 17 years ago, when I started in EMS, the idea with a pediatric cardiac arrest was literally run them out of the house like a football, throw them on the stretcher, then you start CPR, then you blow down the road to the hospital doing what you can on the way to the hospital and hope for a good outcome, which never happens. Now we know the best thing you can do for a kid in cardiac arrest, early CPR, early epinephrine administration. These are the things that are going to help these kids. And I think that goes to speak to any point, like a patient in respiratory extremis. You go back 50 years, we're doing things like rotating tourniquets for CHFers, right? Now we have CPAP and BiPAP and things like this where we can administer nitrates and provide positive pressure and alleviate a lot of the problems that we see. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this can think of more than one patient they've had that looked like they were about to die and they put them on CPAP and they got a whole lot better, a whole lot or a whole very quickly, you know? Exactly. And to answer your question, Moose, uh, so I went through EMT in 2007. Ken, what year? 2007. 2045. Yeah. 2006. Whoa, 2007. whoa, whoa. He and I are the same age. Right. You can't be saying that over here. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm gonna say 06, but okay. yeah, about the same time. And Moose, what year? Uh, 2014. Okay. Yeah. So I know in 2007 there were these two phrases that we heard in all of our patient scenarios as EMT. Load and go. Yep. Stay and play. Yep. And anyone that was super sick was load, load and go. go. You're right. Actually, what? That, even I, I have that. that. Even Any, I have anyone that, yeah. that was moderately okay, and we got some time to stay and play. Yeah. And that was something we you had to verbalize in yeah. your either national or state. For me, it was state checkoff or a test in Virginia. You had to say it. Those were words that were it had to be said to pass. And so we indoctrinated EMTs and paramedics for years and years and years with words of load and go and stay and play. And I think we got away from understanding that we can do a whole lot, a whole lot of good um, on scene and in route to the hospital. Primarily on scene because we don't want to add agitation to the patient because come to find out when they're unstable and you agitate them, they die. <laughs> but we don't want that to happen. That's what we're trying to get away from. And that's, once again, like Ken said, why this protocol or this addition in Maryland, it's an addition to a protocol. I'd say it's under the general patient care. If you guys want to know where to find it, it's a it's two point four. Yep. Uh, in other states, uh, one which was the driving force behind our protocol addition in Pennsylvania, it's a whole algorithm. It's got a flow chart. It's got its own separate page. Uh, but it's it's telling us that hey, you can actually do something on scene to affect change in your patient. And believe it or not, a lot of the things that we can do on scene and in the back of our ambulances is exactly the same acute care that they're going to receive in the emergency department, except we can deliver it now when they called and not, hey, we got to the hospital and, hey, we're, we're in this new age of hugging a wall longer than ever. 
well, our patient's getting worse and worse and worse because, you know, hey, you're the fourth priority one patient to come in in five minutes. We don't have the nurses, the beds, or the doctors to take care of you right now. you got to wait. Let's treat them on scene and start getting them down the road of improvement before we get them to the hospital and let them do those advanced things that we can't do as pre-hospital providers. I think anaphylaxis is a great example of that because within 10 minutes, 15 minutes of arriving on scene of a priority one anaphylaxis, I can give you multiple rounds of EpiIM. I can give you Benadryl IV. I can start fluids. I can give you a steroid and I can start an epi drip if you need it. If I were to take you to the ED, that stuff would probably take half an hour, 45 minutes to happen. And it's the same thing for basically every emergency that we see. We can't treat everything completely every time, but there are a lot of things, especially the life-threatening things, that we can treat. Uh, you know, there, there's one thing I like to uh, look at, and there's been a little bit of research on this, and it hasn't really boded or bode well towards EMS implementing the pre-hospital administration of antibiotics that I've seen for sepsis patients. Um, but that's a, it's kind of a great example of how, if it, if that did have a big impact or a big positive outcome, that would be a, a great thing because we could just start them. Whereas in the ED, they're going to have to get them from pharmacy and do all this, you know, blood cultures and all this other stuff hasn't from what i've seen the one study that i've seen hasn't shown to have any big impact but still interesting i agree it's really interesting and i think that could lead down some passive discussion uh but i think can you and i moose i know you're a little bit outside of the realm of uh actual field providing now but i think within our lifetime as providers because you know you and i can we still got some time to see some stuff we're not young, but we're not old. Uh, I think we will see the push towards that in our time as pre-hospital providers. And I think we'll see things, you know, like some kind of, uh, and the word escapes me, but labs at patient side. Point of it, care. Point of care mm-hmm. labs. Sure. An yeah. iStat. That's what I'm looking for. Some kind of mm-hmm. iStat device at patient side so that we can start this care process prior to arrival at the hospital. I think one of the bridges to that is going to be better telemedicine. Um, and be, be, from anecdotally, from what I've heard, uh, you know, some systems that I've attempted, iStat is, I've heard that's very finicky. And for the record, the podcast doesn't support any particular company or anything, but just that's just anecdotally what I've heard, uh, that the equipment is very finicky. Uh, I think when we, I think when we end up having... Uh, better technology and we have a better connection to the hospital uh i I think that's going to be one opportunity i think uh, i mean it's only i my i i I agree with both of you i think the culture was uh that dichotomy right it was black or white Uh, um either you have some time to play or uh get moving um I just want to clarify one thing uh, before we go any further. So for the folks in Maryland that are listening, the indications for this protocol uh, are uh, adult patients 18 years of age or older who are identified to be an extremist or at uh, risk for deterioration of cardiac arrest at any point during their care. Uh, These patients can include but are not limited to patients with uh, new onset of altered mental status, 
Um, interestingly, it says af- uh, on the AFPU scale, it's not alert, uh, not alert, which, I mean, okay. Uh, airway compromise, uh, acute respiratory distress, signs of poor perfusion, any other patient judged by the clinician be in extremis or at risk for deterioration of cardiac arrest. Um, so if I had a new onset of altered mental status um, and the patient was only alert to painful stimuli, um, I guess in the absence of other things, I would be con- concerned for stroke and stuff like that. Um, but uh, like anything else, I think it's that uh, that umbrella of clinical symptoms that help us draw that uh, you know that unstable, critically ill patient versus someone that uh, maybe hemodynamically hemodynamically stable has a new onset altered mental status um, and needs to be transported immediately. I think it's interesting that it specifies adult. Because is my pediatric asthma or uh, anaphylaxis patient going to be any less in benefit of on-scene treatment than my adult? No. I I don't think so. No. Of course not. So what I'm going to say is I don't know what I don't know about pediatric medicine. Um, And I'm going to say I don't know. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, intuitively, I I am leaning towards agreeing with you, but I don't want to fall into like a pit of, you know. We need Doctor Anders back on the podcast now. Yeah, which we do. I do need to set that up. But yeah, we. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I imagine that there are. I mean, just understanding how the protocol system works in Maryland, I I imagine that. I don't know. Everybody's scared of kids. No, no comment. Yeah, there, there are a lot of providers that are scared of kids. I was scared of kids until actually I became a paramedic. I am currently scared of uh, not scared of kids, but like uh, <laughs> you know, as an gotcha. e- as an EMT, I was very uh, scared of any peds call. Well, it's low frequency, high risk. Yes. Yeah, you know that that's um, uh, that's what makes anyone apprehensive. Well, and most of the time, not always, but a, a lot of the time when we see kids, they are sick. We don't normally see kids with minor complaints. I used to see kids with minor complaints, not frequently when I was on the street, but not infrequently. But most of the kids I saw had something wrong with them, um, and it can be scary. Especially when you don't have a frame of reference for what a normal kid is like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just a thought. No, it's, it's understandable. I mean, I, I am one without kids. So Same. I don't have that frame of reference. I, I have nieces and nephews. But uh, I, I get that trepidation. Uh, that you, know, you don't know if, is this what their mental status is supposed to look like? Is this, you know, it, a lot of it is uh, subjective. It's based off of the family telling you, yeah, this is how they normally are. On the inverse, our geriatrics are the same way. Family saying, this is how they normally are, yeah. or are they not? Um, and it can lead to um, just being scared of the patient. Yeah, And that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be scared and say, I don't know. But it also, it should drive you to become better with it. And sure. that's that's where it was for me. I I was scared because I didn't know enough, and I decided I wanted to pay extra attention and specifically pals. Pals helped me a lot, but that's another discussion for another day. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I mean pals was always my favorite AHA class. 
I will say that both PALS and ACLS, one of the, I think one of the things that the paramedic program that I went through did very well is they brought those classes in at the end and they are a great way to ice the cake, right? So it kind of brought everything together for me. Um, so, and I, I, I yeah, I, I think I might agree with you, like Ken. Uh, um, I, I think PALS was my, is my most favorite uh, AHA class because I think I every time I take it I get the most out of it. Yeah, yeah. I, my recent recertification I let it lapse uh, and then it got it again because of the army. Uh, the recertification process I had to go through had it inherent to the class, and we did as a team leader and team member did ten scenarios in pals. I mean, did all kinds of very sick kids of varying degrees with a group of very well-trained flight paramedics as well. And I gained a lot from that class. And, you know, say what you want about the AHA, that, that class, that PALS iteration did a lot for me. I think even on the surface level with the videos, just having movies that show you what sick kids look like, like this, this four-year-old is really working to breathe right now. This is what it looks like. You know, I, I think that's good because we don't get a lot of that. We get a lot of scenarios and, I don't know, pictures and slideshows and stuff like that. But we don't get a lot of actual, hey, this is what it looks like when somebody is really working to breathe. You know, this mm -hmm. is what sick looks like. And PALS, I think, does a good job of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, the structure. I mean, you, you get structure that you otherwise don't get. I yeah. mean, you know, um, as the listeners are, I'm sure, aware, I'm not the biggest fan of, like, pure algorithm medicine, but uh, I think there's uh, uh, a lot to say about having frameworks, you know. Um, I mean, one of the two books I usually have when we're recording, right? Uh, what is it? Frameworks of for Internal Medicine by Andre Mansour that I know we've talked about. Like, uh, the frameworks, the, they're the... There's benefit in structure when you're you're treating really sick people and you have multiple competing priorities. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that kind of brings us back around full full circle to the crashing patient thing. When you do have somebody who's really sick, you may have multiple priorities. You know, you may have multiple life threats at one time. They they might be in respiratory extremis and they might be in VTAC with a pulse. So what do you do first? You know, what's your first action? So uh, how, how do you kind of, when you have a patient like that, think about your approach? So I, I take a, a note out of my, uh, my father's book. Um, not literal book, but uh, some of you may have been taught by him that listen. Some of you may know him from the community, but he was a paramedic and a PA before, and he taught in a paramedic program, and he would teach patient assessment. And one of his guiding principles was, what will kill your patient in front of you? So looking at your patient and figuring out what will kill them in front of me right now, is it the STEMI or is it the third degree block that is making them uh, not perfusing correctly? They're altered. They've got, they've got a blood pressure in the tank. The STEMI that's going on as well is not going to kill them outright in front of me, but the bradycardia will. So I need to treat that now and then worry about the STEMI later. Or your poly problem patient that you just 
you know, um, brought up, Ken, how many people have had the patient that is now in congestive heart failure because their AFib is out of whack? You know, they, they got an AFib with RVR in the 200s, but they also have rails. They sound like crap. They look like crap. What do you fix first? Well, surprise, surprise, if you fix the AFib, it starts to work on the, the congestive heart failure too. And But some people might go the other way. But what is going to hurt them right now? And in, in that case, it's the AFib with RVR that's out of whack. we got to start working on that, whether it's through cardioversion or cardizim or... Uh, Verap mill sometimes, depending on the shortage around the nation. Uh, but I think it's, like I said, what is going to kill your patient in front of you? There's certain things that will, and certain other problems, while they're serious, won't. So, Yeah, I have a question for both of you, and this is not completely off topic, but it's a little off topic. I was recently told by somebody that pacing only works for about five minutes and then you have to give atropine i see both of your faces falling so i see you're sitting in agreement with me that you have never heard such a thing i'm not sure that's how physiology works i didn't think that's how physiology worked either if anything i would say flip the two words yes. that for, sounds more reasonable like, to you know, me because what's, atro- what's a half life atropine? atropine right and so like, as we like to teach our students, pacing is an on and off. We can we we are one hundred percent in control of the patient's heart while we do that. Right. Atropine, we are taking a medication, shoving it down, and then we're taking our foot and putting it on the gas pedal and holding it down until our foot wears out. Right. And that foot being our half life on mm-hmm. atropine. We have zero control. Whereas with pacing, we have all the control in the world. And, and Ken, if, if pacing only works for five minutes and atropine has to be done afterwards, then there's a whole lot of business within the medical community around pacemakers that <laughs> needs to like not exist. Because obviously those things work for the first five minutes after implantation, and that's it. I'm glad we're all in agreement. And I don't want to, you know, whoever told you this, like I, I don't mean this come off. I don't want to give off a condescending tone, right? So um, I I think that brings up a good point of, I mean, education, right? So um, what are we actually doing when we're pacing someone, right? So we have an intrinsic pacemaker in the SA node, right? For whatever uh, pathological reason, we, that pacemaker is not working. So we kind of have to provide um, that uh, pacemaker for the patient. What's atropine doing? Atropine, uh, so at, uh, the way I think about it is like a governor on an engine, right? So you're kind of the, the uh, I believe, primary innervation at the AV node, right? Which is because of, um, was it uh, calcium channels? Or maybe I'm, co- I'm confusing two concepts. But uh, what I would say is um, uh, you're controlling vagal tone, right, uh, with your vagus nerve. Uh, the um, – atropine is cutting away right so you're kind of taking the governor away so if there is too much parasympathetic tone you're cutting it away and hopefully you know in a sideways way fixing bradycardia so um yeah i mean i think we answered that pretty pretty well um i do want to come back to what you were talking about in terms of like um so 
there's a couple books that like I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, um, and I reread all the time and take multiple notes. And one of those, and I'm sure half the audience is going to kind of sigh at this, but uh, Extreme Ownership uh, by, by, by Jocko. And uh, uh, one of the concepts that I use all the time is prioritize and execute, right? Um, because in these high-stress situations, right, it is very easy to um, uh, kind of freeze and not know what to do next. Uh, what I tell my paramedic students is we in medicine luckily have a cheat sheet because we have something called a primary assessment, right? And the primary assessment is primary for a reason because those are like the life-sustaining functions in your body. Uh, so, um, and this kind of also uh, ta- incorporates the OODA loop, right? So um, basically when things are going wrong, um, prioritize, execute, do your ABC, do your primary assessment, and then continue with the rest of the, the assessment. And I think the key word there is assessment because what people were doing, and I'm guilty of this, I've done this before as well, is when you're kind of freaking out, right? Your your own sympathetic tone's up. You're, you know, you lose fine motor function. You're like, oh God, this QA note's going to be terrible. Uh, you kind of lose track of what's exactly going on and what the, and when you, uh, when, especially when there is cool to see that there's uh, a protocol here, which uh, we'll, we'll get back to. Basically, the first line says, seize all efforts at patient movement until treatments in this protocol are completed uh, or, or are complete. That's important because not only are you uh, directly stopping time for treatment, but there is no treatment without assessment, right? So this allows for that time to assess your patient appropriately. Um, and I think that's crucial. Um, it's number two on the protocol. It says obtain a complete patient assessment including pulse oximetry, but I would argue that that is what should be bold here because you can't really treat, you know, appropriately if you don't have a good uh, assessment, right? And maybe in that uh, OODA loop that you've now, you know, had the opportunity to to initiate, you find something that maybe is making your patient pretty sick. Uh, Maybe that patient is uh, in need of CPAP and initially you kind of just threw an NRB on. Um, Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I think there is no critically unstable patient protocol without also discussing those two concepts. I agree completely with that. Um, the, the assessment is what gets us into anything we're doing further. I mean, yes, could we just literally grab the patient off the couch, put him on the stretcher, sit in the captain's chair, and then drive to the hospital without looking at the patient and doing nothing? Yes. There's a word for that. It's called neglect uh, and not doing your job. But... What we have to do is we have to assess the patient and we should assess them prior to any intervention of doing anything. You know, the movement of the patient can exasperate so many things that we haven't found yet. You know, um, you know, we can go back to the, I don't know if it's an age old adage, but the old, uh, paramedic stress test sound familiar of, you know, Hey, let's make the chest pains patient walk to the stretcher and see if they make it. Not that we're actually thinking that way, but you know, that's why we don't we try not walk our chest pains patients to the stretcher because time and time again back in the day before we were paramedics many paramedics got caught with their feet with their pants down when they dropped between the couch and the stretcher because we gave that extra exertion on the heart that it just said that's it I'm done I've done all I can and you gave me this last little bit of push so Let's try and take that out of the equation and do everything at the couch, the bed, the floor, the chair, the car, the sidewalk, wherever it is. You know, as long as uh, scene safety issues, you know, don't compromise that. You know, 
Ken, you work in a much different jurisdiction than I am, and you might have a higher uh, chance of a scene safety issue than me because of the environment that you work in in the inner city. I work in a suburban area with very little urban involvement, so I might not have that issue. But still, hey, once we get them from the sidewalk and into the security of our locked ambulance, now let's do our assessment, not just beat feet. You know, or maybe, hey, maybe we need to pull around the corner and do everything around the corner before getting to the hospital. Because if you walk in with your patient in VTAC and you didn't do anything and found out beforehand, oh boy, you're going to hear it from the nurse. And oh boy, you're going to hear it from the doc. You know? Um, and, and there's there's things that can be done to even do this on your non-extremist patients. Uh, in my department, we are a very data-driven as Moose knows, having talked to numerous uh, people in the higher echelons of my department, we go through a lot of data. Uh, we see a lot of patients. We churn a lot of data. We filter a lot of data. We get a lot of information from it. And just to think, you know, say on your STEMI patient, your chest pains, we have a um, window we like to shoot for. Ten minutes from at patient side time to 12 lead acquisition. Guess what? If you're going to move your patient between when you first get there to the unit, you're probably going to break your 10 minutes. That's just a way to think about it. Like even on your, like a STEMI patient, sometimes, a lot of times, they may not look sick. They might just be sitting there and say, I've got some chest pain. And oh boy, you've got a giant inferior or anterior lateral septal, whatever it is that day. But if you can find it at where they're found, it's just going to make things better in the end. It's interesting. I just want to complete the, the so part B of the protocol, again for folks from Maryland that are listening. Uh, so BLS um, and it just sets a gives a series of steps. So sees all uh, efforts that patient movement, like I said before, obtain a complete patient history, like I said before. Number three is consider the need for more resources if available, including multiple ALS clinicians. Number four, control life-threatening external hemorrhage. Uh, number five, manage the patient's airway and ventilation, uh, e.g. BVM with or without OPI-NPA as indicated and tolerated. Uh, and number six, treat hypoxia and respiratory distress aggressively. I like the word. Number one, I should say, uh, like we were talking about before, it's not a coincidence that all those things are uh, parallel to the primary assessment, right? Um, and then also the word aggressive. Um, so, uh, I have a question for you guys. What, in your experience, what has, and there is no, I guess there's no right answer to this, but I just want to, I'm curious. What has predisposed, what are the characteristics of an aggressive paramedic versus a not aggressive paramedic or clinicians? Clinician. <laughs> I should say intelligent aggression. I think I actually brought this up on a previous podcast. You shouldn't be aggressive for aggressiveness sake. You should be marked and uh, directed and intelligent about how you carry out You your evaded actions. my trap question. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing, I think, is just understanding what you're dealing with and not pushing drugs just because a box in the protocol says you can push the drug. It's understanding what that drug does, why it does that. You know, if you have your, you know, patient with a PE who presents an AFib with right bundle branch block and their heart rate is 
140 and you give Cardizem, have you done the right thing? You're being aggressive. They're an AFib RVR, right? Well, yeah, but no. Yeah, so I, I, I'm so glad you said that because I think that's like a, that's a scale that we should just trash in medicine, right? There is no, there is no scale of aggressiveness versus uh, what is a conservative medicine. What's, what's the other, what, what's the other end of that? What do you think? Uh, sandbagging. Uh, well, sandbagging, I, yeah. or just you know holding the hand of the patient and saying it's going to be okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And See, I, I, I don't think that's like a thing. Like that shouldn't. Like I, I, when we, th- we, uh, so, uh, Jim Mattis, right? He talks about what he looks for in subordinates aggressiveness and initiative. So I, I'd like to take away aggressiveness and put in integrity because with that integrity comes the responsibility of only doing the right treatment for your patient. Right. Uh, because I think we all know those folks that literally, uh, skill jockeys, skill robots, skill robots. Sure. Skill robots. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I'm that's, a good, that's a good uh, PC. Yeah. Jesus. God, man. <laughs> yeah. Audit that out. But regardless, you know, like people that are looking to be, they want to see how much of the drug cabinet they can give on one call. Right. right? And um, so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, there there is a lot of that where there are people who are just like, I need to do, I want to do this procedure tonight. Or I need to go, you know, give this many drugs or, you know, and they just look for excuses. And if, the like I said, if the protocol says, oh, they're in AFib RVR. You can give cardizem. You can cardiovert. Well, what's the physiologic reason that they're in AFib RVR right now? You know, I don't know. No, so uh, the I, I thought when you were starting your point, you were going to say intelligence, like period, is what creates an intelligence. Uh, oh was, yeah. And I was uh, and I was going to disagree with you hardcore because uh, I some of the most brilliant people I know were also some of the most uh, skill-addicted people um, for so, whatever reason. So, Moose, you, you missed uh, an off-air discussion Ken and I were having about that intelligence part. So part of being a paramedic is understanding what you're doing, how you're going to do it, and the desired effects that you're going to look for, both negative and positive. And if you understand what is going on with your patient and the things that are available to you, to best pick what is going to get the best desired effect in the end. Absolutely. And also at the right time. Yeah. You know, you, you, you could know everything. You could understand, hey, this patient in AFib with RVR at a rate of 140. Yeah. They're, you know, they're going to get this course of treatment over time. But what part of that course of treatment can I do right now that's going to have the best effect right now for them? Not like what my personal satisfaction, you know, oh, yes, I got to do this drug. I got to or give this drug. I got to perform this skill. You know, it. it's what is going to benefit your patient right now and at the right time. And, and I, I got to say this, too. I I. I, I I think, I think the minority. I think it's the exception, not the role of people that outwardly say that they want to do skills, right? But I think there's a massive middle ground of people that, if they were to be very introspective, 
they would realize that they're aggressive uh, in the inappropriate way. But I think that middle ground is where, and I don't know, may, maybe I fall into or fell into one of those, uh, uh, if somewhere in the spectrum early in my career where I wanted to be very, uh, you know, aggressive with my patient. And maybe we even tell ourselves, oh, it's for the betterment of the patient. But a small part of it is, oh, I want to feel like I did my job. Right. So I think a lot of that, um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because a lot of this ends up being a culture thing, right? So a culture of a department, a culture of a, a firehouse, a culture of a partnership. Um, and I mean, I'd love to get your thoughts on that too. Uh, so I, I am lucky in that I work on a shift that is aggressive in all things that we do, both fire and EMS. But where the, I mean, I don't want to, you know, uh, inflate my own ego or our ego as a shift, but we do it in the right way that we um, treat quickly and appropriately and what would be considered aggressive by other people within the department. You know, we might be a little quicker to pull the trigger on a pace or on a medication because we know, okay, this is how this is going and this is what's going to truly benefit this patient now, not down the road in the algorithm, but hey, this is what's going to be done now. And we don't do it out of uh, cockiness or bravado or anything like that. And I've been really lucky to work with these medics for the past four years on this shift. And we have had people come in that are aggressive as well. Um, and I will say also aggressiveness has its time and place. Sure. There are times where being a little, you know, even the right aggressiveness might not be the right thing for the situation. And you read my mind, right? So uh, I think, and I'm sure your your crew is a part of this. I think one of the litmus tests that you can administer to any group of EMS clinicians, again, whether it's a BLS crew, ALS crew, whatever, you know, a shift, is do they know when not to do something? Right, and I think that's what you're that's yes, saying, right? Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, understanding when not to do the intervention. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a popular Instagram page within EMS that I follow that just had this as a topic. Understanding when not maybe a topic. It was it was brought up when not to do something. Understanding, hey, this isn't totally the appropriate thing. Yeah, maybe sometimes it's just the timing of it. Sure, you know. Um, do we need to be a little bit more aggressive once we get away from uh, the family that might be hindering the assessment? You know, I think we've all run into patients that aren't as talkative when they're around a patient or around a family, and then we find out more and okay, now we got to act a little bit more. Yeah, do do some more stuff. Um, I think a good example of that, honestly, is. Uh um, that accelerated idioventricular uh, rhythm you get oftentimes after a ROSC uh, because it's a reperfusion and uh, arrhythmia that's natural. It's expected. Yep. I mean, Amal Matu talks about it all the time uh, in his stuff where uh, uh, he says this is completely normal. Uh, but to a, uh, I, I, I have seen um, uh, that be a pitfall for pre-hospital clinicians where they believe it to be a slow VTAC, which I mean, that's what he calls it, a slow attack, but it's not something we need to treat right now. True. You know, um, what's helpful, though, is understanding, uh, you know, kind of a root cause analysis of the pathophysiology behind it and why we should be or not should not be worried about something. Um, 
so I'm not sure where I was going with that train of thought, but I mean, I mean, I mean, I think that's, I think kind of leads into like the whole education thing too. But, um, yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's also hard in the moment because what we haven't really talked about yet is in, in uh, great detail is culture when things aren't like your shift. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I get to experience that. I'm not going to say on a regular basis. Um, cause I, I've been lucky enough to not be detailed out to other stations a whole lot lately, but definitely when there's a difference when I'm not working with my shift, uh, and different stations handle EMS differently. And that is an overarching culture of EMS within a department or an agency uh, that may need some fine-tuning or some reworking of some sort. Um, and there you have to understand that the way you perform may be different than what they're expecting and what they're used to, and that sometimes it might come off as abrasiveness. Or a little or abrasive, cockiness. cockiness, you know, um, or uh, a try hard, you know. Oh, why are you doing this? Because our medic never does that type thing. So um, that I feel as though it could be a an episode in and of itself, talking about the culture of EMS, especially in a fire-based system. It is interesting how every station has its own subculture, its own personalities, um, you know, in some ways almost its own religions, you know, just like these, these firmly held belief systems. But at the same time, that doesn't change the fact that good medicine is good medicine. But sometimes those cultural beliefs run counter to the good medicine, you know, <clears throat> especially if you get nothing against people who've been doing this longer than us, but, you know, a, a bunch of people who've been doing this a really long time who are still in that load-and-go versus stay-and-play mentality. Well, what I would say, though, to that is, I mean, playing devil's advocate a little bit, but also kind of, uh, you know, feeling some sort of, you know, sympathy, empathy for those folks is their definition of good medicine was what we feel is bad medicine, right? And what, uh, and... um I think that speaks to the general culture of uh, EMS that is shifting, but we need to uh, uh, build and push further, is the transition from technician to clinician. Um, and uh, I'm a huge proponent of that. Um, I'll be honest, when I first heard about you know the term change, I was a little... Uh, you know, I hate it. You, you still hate it? Yeah. I hate it. You still hate <laughs> it. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, it, because... I mean... Not to put any sort of technical work down, but like, I think what the clinician word uh, puts forth is that critical thinking uh, component. So I want to hear why you hate it. I hate it because to me, a clinician is a physician. Period. End of story. Interesting. All right. And if you look up the def definition of clinician, the first thing that comes up is physician. Because I've looked this up before. And then, then it gets expanded to mid-levels. Okay, so your NPs and your PAs, they're, they're now clinicians. Well, then now nurses are clinicians, too. And now so are paramedics. So to me, it's a, it's a title of esteem. You know, it's, are you it's, afraid of greatness? 
I am great. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, yeah, no I get you. Yeah. Um, no, it, I don't know. I, I guess I shouldn't say I hate it. Um, I just, to me, a clinician, and it's really no different than provider. Provider traditionally refers to a physician. So I guess there is no difference between the two. Are you one of those people that says EMS doesn't diagnose? No. Okay. I'm not one of those people. Okay. That's. I'm like, just not a physician. I, I well, and I mean, and rightfully so, right? So like, uh, well, when I say rightfully so, I mean rightfully you make that uh, clear because um, we've talked about Dunning Kruger before, right? Uh, there's a lot of folks that. Um, have a lot of early uh, success in EMS and they see the wide range of skills that we get to do um, and the wide range of good we get to do with a little amount of education and we feel that um, because of that um, I'm afraid I'm sounding condescending here but like because we have such privileges outside the hospital we feel that there's a, um, a bit of same levelness with the folks that can do the skills in the hospital. And for that reason, I think folks tend to kind of, I don't know, promote themselves in inappropriate ways. I, I think that medicine is not the pyramid that people used to treat it as, right? With physicians at the top and technicians at the bottom. I mean, it's truly a team oriented thing where um, it, 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 there is no, um, hierarchy that being said i firmly believe there is no replacement for a medical education and i know that might piss off some nps and pas but i agree completely. there is no replacement for four years of medical school however many years of residency i mean i got dude i got a, one of my really good friends is a intern in uh, san diego right now not intern he's like a third year resident internal medicine the guy was telling me on a 24-hour shift the stuff he's responsible for and i'm like dude i used to complain about 24 hours on a medic unit but at least i could drop these people off and my scope is like this you know like there's no replacement for that kind of training i'm not saying it's the healthiest kind of training but there's no replacement for that 100 percent. yeah that being said i think the definition of a clinician is someone who provided a patient can appropriately uh, assess and treat their ailment to the to the highest level of their ability and then get them to definitive care uh, what give an example of that that isn't a paramedic an emergency department physician right you have someone sick you're in a community hospital you give your lytics, you give whatever, right? And then you call transport, and they take them to definitive care. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a term to be uh, considered rude. It's just what medicine is. I'm gonna revise my answer. Yeah. Only intensivists are considered clinicians. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm gonna. Not totally agree with you, Ken. I like the word clinician when it comes to paramedics. I knew you would. Practitioners, provider. Uh, I try and use that over the one of those terms in emails or uh, talking about what we do. Because I think if you use a esteemed term like that, 
when you're talking to especially a new paramedic, someone that's training to be a paramedic, you're telling you're trying to show them that hey, you're a clinician. What you do has effect. What you do is important. Uh, you're not a technician so much. And I'm not trying to belittle the technician yeah. name because there are other professions in this world and even EMTs, emergency medical technician. I am not trying to belittle them. I have I work with They're some of the best some of the yeah. best EMTs I've ever worked with in my life at my station. They make my life as a medic ten times easier. But for that paramedic to be like, hey, I want you to understand that you have a lot that you know and you can do a lot and you can do a lot of good. And this kind of also harkens back to another discussion you and I can had is the higher education of a paramedic. So if we want to push higher education in paramedicine, why shouldn't we also push like, hey, obviously you're not a doctor. You know, there's the old terms of road doctors, but we're not doctors. We don't hold a medical degree. There's no MD or DO after our name or before our name doctor or whatever. But what we do is an important piece of the chain of survival or the betterment of our patients. So why don't we give them like, hey, there's a term next, you know, what you are is, you know, an esteemed term. Before, uh, uh, real quick, the, I just remember this. My first day, of, so Ken was my paramedic instructor. My first day of paramedic school, do you remember what Steve Proctor said to us? He yeah. said, and this was before the whole clinician wave in Maryland. Um, he's like, we're not training you guys to be technicians here. Like, we're training you guys to actually critically look at your patients. And I said something else. And he's like, we're training you guys to be clinicians. And that sticks with me because you're absolutely right. I was that guy that you were just talking about, the newer person who was going to be a paramedic. And it kind of it bestows a different level of ownership on the clinician uh, to... Uh, There's your word, ownership. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to... Uh, uh, you know, train more, learn more, but also uh, another term that uh, actually a president at my volunteer firehouse where I started um, kind of, you know, drove into my head, and that's constructive dissatisfaction. Um, I think one of the most dangerous people in medicine are the folks that are comfortable, right? Uh, so in a constructive way, always being dissatisfied with where you are with your level of education, your level of training, and what you can do to increase your uh, uh, patient care, and I cut you off, Ken, sorry. No, you're okay, um, because I think those are all great points. <clears throat> but what I was going to say is that if we want to use these terms and hold ourselves to these standards, not to rehash the discussion we had, we need to start building a culture with the students and and start with that, because I, I this is no exaggeration. I taught an EMT refresher a couple weeks ago, at a local community college and most of the students in that class were paramedic students who were almost on the program. One of them was a physician and those paramedic students sat around and talked about what a waste of time their ICU clinicals were, how they couldn't learn anything in the ICU. They couldn't do anything. There was no value for them to spend 16 hours in the ICU. There is no place you can learn more than the IC freaking you. If you apply yourself, if you walk around and look at patients' charts, if you go do rounds with the nurses, talk to the intensivist, stuff like that, you will get so much out of your ICU clinical. However, these students 
saw no value in it. And I died a little bit inside. We're probably going to have to edit this out. Um, so, I'm with you. What I will say is... Uh, I'm with you. I do agree with you. But uh, you have to take into consideration the system that they were put into. Right? So, if the system that they were put into is not conducive to paramedic students, which those systems exist, those departments exist. So, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. That being said... Um, if we're definitely gonna have to edit this out, but <laughs> did we set up our students for success? Did we model behavior that they should have done, uh, performed when they went to that place? Or did we like oftentimes paramedic programs do set them up for failure because a, that is a culture, right? You go into an intensive care unit anywhere that I've been to, it is a particular culture, Right. And if you don't set up the EMS paramedic students who may have not even gone to college as a high school graduate, if you have not set them up for that, that type of, for lack of a better term, academic medicine, and those people in there aren't familiar with what paramedics can do, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I like to look at, I'm, I'm not saying that the students aren't at fault. What I'm saying is, Maybe there's fault to spread. There may be fault to spread, but I think there's an attitude issue as well. And it's not just that, and it's not just them. I think there is a generation of people who, not a generation, but there are people within the generation who just expect everything served on a silver platter and to do the bare minimum. I've talked to people at other colleges. I talked to my wife, who's an ER nurse. She has paramedic students from another college come in, sit on their phone all day, do nothing, say they don't have any paperwork that needs to be done, and leave. And, and I'm with you. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I guess there's a book I want you to read. It's called okay. Ra Radical Inclusion. I just finished it by Martin Dempsey and this dude from Berkeley. Um, what I would say is, I guess I don't like that. Like looking at things that way because you're only creating more divisiveness, right? No student is going to hear an instructor say that and be like, oh, okay, I'm messing up. The rare student is going to say, oh, I'm messing up. I'm going to fix myself. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Es especially, you know, going down your, your, your line of thought, it's only going to piss them off more, right? That they're going to be like, oh, this old guy who like is a crusty paramedic is telling me how to, I, how I should be a student. You know what I mean? Right. I, I think a, a a better way or maybe a more condu uh, more productive way may be to set those expectations from the beginning and model that behavior. And um, I, I'll say this on the record. Uh, the current EMS education textbooks that are standard, I am not a big fan of. Um, I think the standard of education I'm not a huge fan of. I agree. Um. I think one of my bucket list items, not I think, this is a bucket list item, is writing a paramedic textbook like it's written for medical students, right? Not to the level of content, because like you guys said, we're not physicians. That being said, there's no reason that there can't be 400 level or upper level biology incorporated into a paramedic program. 
in we're, we're putting people in situations where they're by uh, me personally by themselves in really crappy sick patient scenarios and we're setting them up for failure because we don't actually show them what's going on so it's funny how what Ken and I talked about earlier plays so much into what we're talking about right now. So can you talk about um, students going to the ICU and ER and not getting everything out of it that they can? I'll admit when I went to the ICU, now that I look back on it, I probably should have done a lot more back in my clinicals back in 2015. And I wish I had. Um, but I think we need to look at the education systems in which these students are coming from. We want to to make this profession more and more respectable within allied health and healthcare in general and you know be able to do these things and say these things. But if we don't have a program that is set up to have students that can understand a 400 level exactly, yeah, biology in their EMS education or even if we have that, the expectation that following class, will you ever use these things that you learn? And what's the value in getting this stuff and, and harnessing it and keeping it? You know, because some of these people in these paramedic programs across the nation, some will only ever volunteer. Some will go on to be doctors and nurses and PAs, NPs, flight medics, whatever it is. And they may progress their education. But if we don't set a standard out there that, hey, when you finish, these are the things that you can do because you're a paramedic, then I think we're going to constantly see that um, disengagement by the students. And the best way I can relate it, and I only know so much about this, is in the U.K., Every paramedic has to be has to hold a bachelor's degree, and their scope is way less. The standard, well, yeah, it, in in certain ways, yeah, because in other ways, they can go to someone's house as a paramedic and prescribe anything within the NHS formula. Yep, any drug, prescribe, write them a note, and then leave. Nowhere in America would that ever happen because we don't have the standardization one obviously it's a different kind of healthcare system but we don't have a standardization standardization of education to allow paramedics to be able to understand the disease processes what needs to be done and what can be done down the road yeah but if we get to that point in some way shape or form maybe we can start seeing that involvement in the ICU that getting off the, the chair and the phone and the ER and constantly, what can I learn next? What can I do? Maybe that's where it needs to go. Maybe that's yeah. how we actually I think it definitely everybody. has a role to play. Yeah. But let me ask you guys this then. I mean, what there's always the discussion of what's going to incentivize me to get this degree if I don't get paid more. <laughs> so we had that conversation on the uh, – <laughs> This is turning into this is turning into shock index two point five. This is good. This is good. Um, So my answer on the shock index is there. There becomes a role for the employer and the operational organization to look at the fact that 
a degreed paramedic is more well-rounded, more highly educated, more productive, going to make better decisions, probably cause less or cause fewer problems. And there needs to be an incentive from the operational organization, whether it's more money or it is uh, opportunity for advancement that's contingent upon having that degree. Uh, those are basically the two things I could think of. Um, but, I mean, where I work, I can't promote without college credit. I can't promote to a certain degree without a degree. Um, that's just a requirement. Other places do offer bonuses for having a college degree. You know where, where you know where I think the solution lies. Where's that? You're gonna hate this, but I'm it's not... it's how medicine works. CMS. <laughs> if we start billing for, if we create constructs and we start providing more care, right? Or we run pilot programs where we're doing more. And I'm not. And, and the 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 reflexes always go to like, I don't know, community paramedicine. That's not what I mean. Sure, that's one. That could be one of the things. But true advanced practice critical care in the field. I guarantee you, if CMS said that there's a third or whoever controls billing right for Medicare Medicaid, that's CMS. Mm -hmm. There's a third level of billing that we're gonna pilot. We're gonna put one percent of one percent of the total national security budget but we're going to put it into this pilot product. We're going to put that line item to HHS or uh, DOT or whatever. DOT, let's and, be honest. Um, yeah, exactly. And we're going to we're going to select particular jurisdictions in an equitable fashion across the United States, and we're going to test this third level of billing. And we're going to also subsidize education, right, with particular healthcare systems. Um collaboration with the fire department fire base ems volunteer whatever you third system third uh third uh, service i mean and we're going to run a five-year pilot and we're going to look at patient outcomes you know it's it's funny that you would say that i would hate it because i was talking to the program director of another community college last night after you left work and we had a very similar discussion and on my way home I tried and I racked my brain to think of a way to do this and to solve these problems without government involvement. I could not. So I don't I may I may not love it, but you're right. I mean, there has to be some sort of a force that starts to align the stars in terms of EMS accountability, EMS accreditation, EMS education, and that is going to be what moves the clock in the direction of uh, a, a more well-paid and more well-respected EMS system. It's, uh, I, I don't see another way. I would love to find another way, and I'm going to try to find another way, but you're right. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because of the ET3 model, right? So, like, and I just Googled it just to refresh. So, the emergency triage, treat, and transport ET3 is a voluntary five-year payment model that will provide greater flexibility to ambulance care teams to address emergency health care needs to, of uh, Medicare fee-for-service FFS beneficiaries following a 911 call. Um, honestly, I think that in all the things that are happening in pre-hospital medicine, I think this is one of the biggest ones. Because oh, yeah. it's providing, yes. it's helping move money to the places that need it the most. Correct. 
100% agree. Um, th the idea that you're proposing, Moose, is exactly what we need. The uh, legality, the political side of it that Ken brings up, I think is the tough part. Because once again, like, you know, we chimed in, we're under DOT right now. You know, uh, why why aren't we under something else? You know, and, and the framework of that then to create this third system of billing to get that money. I, I 100%, the, we all know the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall would said, yes, greater pa better patient outcomes, reduced mortality and morbidity in everything we did. Not just select skills, select medications, because you're going to have a higher educated, more um, engaged um, workforce, whether it's volunteer or paid. They're going to be more engaged and be better at their job because they have the education and the backing to continue that education and progress their skill set, their knowledge set, everything. Mm -hmm. um, I... I it kind of harkens to something the army did. So basically before I want to say 2010, we'll just go with 2010. A majority of the flight paramedics, and I dare say flight paramedics, flight medics in the United States army were EMTBs with some extra training because they're army medics, which are all EMTs. And then they got some extra training as paramedics. They might get some unit level stuff. And then we go to Afghanistan and we're now transmit, transporting patients from different uh, levels of care throughout the country to higher levels of care. These are patients that came from a major traumatic episode that may be on pressors, paralytics, sedatives, um, stuff for uh, decreasing ICP. They're sedated. They're on a vent. They're on all these drips, and they're, we're trusting an EMT to transport these patients for 30 to 45 minutes to a higher level of care. In the States, that would never happen. Obviously, that's a whole level of billing, a whole level of care. So a unit decided to deploy with only flight paramedics, and they compared it for between an EMT unit and a flight paramedic unit and brought it to the Army, and the Army realized all of their flight medics need to be paramedics, and that's what they've gone to now. That everyone in the back of a medevac helicopter, or the medics in the back of the medevac helicopter, are flight paramedic, and they have a critical care education, paramedic education, and they have their FPC. That and we have they have seen better patient outcomes. So that what you're proposing would 100% produce better patient outcomes. Wow! So higher levels of education improve patient outcomes at least in some circumstances what I, so what i would say though is the army has the benefit of centralization though right so and that unfortunately we don't have that kind of centralization and also we um uh, we don't have the how should i say this the benefit of a a homogeneous like organization that has similar uh units kind of built up into one thing right so like correct for example uh like the guy i was talking to from omaha like describing even the differences between omaha nebraska's fire department and then the rural areas um 
I think this helps because uh, CMS is the standardized payer. So you get that, like, uh, um, you get the common denominator. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with yeah. you. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. Have you guys read the EMS agenda for 2050? I have. And the little abstracts in between each section? Well, I mean, as you know, we, we uh, created the EMS. Well, the, how should I say this? Yes, Maryland has an EMS plan. And yeah, well, yeah, I'm, talk- yeah. I'm not talking about the yeah, Maryland yeah, but, plan. I'm talking yeah, about the but national it, one. But, yeah, it was informed, yeah. I believe, from. Yeah. So it talks about a nationwide education system where then those people get sent out to rural areas or urban areas and do their time and kind of like a national service type thing in a way. Mm-hmm. But you know, it'd be interesting because it kind of ties into that. And the the particular libertarian in the at the table would state that the answer is not more government regulation, though. <laughs> Don't worry. The uh, one of the conservatives at the table would kind of agree with that. <laughs> oh, trust me, two of the conservatives at the table would say that. Um, it's just tough, though, to come up with a solution for such a systemic problem. I think know? the problem is though. How do I say this so we don't have to edit this out? I think the problem is particular the the reason people run into issues with the the reason people hate big government I think is because big government makes policy and decision without even including the people that it's affecting. Oh, absolutely, that's part of it, it. and I, I think that's a major part of it, right? And then also they do these sweeping regulations that, depending on what particular issue you're talking about excludes more people than it includes yep. and i don't think any policymaker sits down and says i'm going to make a crappy policy that's going to alienate 60 percent of the population so are we ready to do our political podcast next <laughs> yeah. i don't know it <laughs> uh i think the solution is somewhere in there i do want to finish up uh, since we spoke about each uh, part of the protocol, the last part of the protocol is the advanced life support section. Section C is, um, and we're going to wait for these uh, sirens to pass us. Go get them, brothers. I knew you were going to say that. I was going to say, never mind, I'm not going to say that. GGB. GGB. The uh, ALS section is initiate and title carbon uh, dioxide monitoring. It's Please. only getting louder. Are they coming closer? Yes, they are. What is it? Should initiate entitled carbon uh, dioxide monitoring. Obtain 12 lead EKG if appropriate for patient condition. Obtain vascular access and support perfusion with IV fluids and vasopressors as indicated. Address any other life threats noted on physical exam. And continue general patient care, including transport. We should dive into, I've been wanting to do this for a while, I just haven't put the time in, like a good series on perfusion. That should be, yeah, like a series. Yeah, right. like what so that actually means. The funny thing is, is when I started listening to the Shock Index episodes, that's what I thought they were. I didn't know, <laughs> what, shock de- I didn't know what Shock Index meant, and I was like, this could be about perfusion somehow, because, you know, Shock Index, perfusion, they did kind of go. Quite the high. opposite. No, it's <laughs> actually <laughs> just uh, really hyper-focused on wep- one episode where I said something bad about volunteers. Oh, I, I know. I heard about the that. the end of it. <laughs> the, wait, you heard about it? That's 
No, I heard that. I, oh, I yeah, listened yeah. to him. Well, so the shock index, I've actually had the idea from pre-COVID because I was like, that's a good play on words. Like it like shocks yeah. you when you're listening to it because of the crap we talk about, but it has nothing to do. But it's also like, sense. you know. But uh, no, I think we should do a perfusion episode. Uh, so we should. So, yeah. So what did you want to talk about with that last part, the ALS interventions? <sighs> so, I mean. Since I know we got to cut this around. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. I think it's good that it's said here because a lot of people don't think I, they prioritize transport over these things or they believe that they can perform those functions in route. I'll be the first one to say, uh, you know, like I'm sure all of us have like gotten access in route. Um, yeah. I try not to do the initial access in route, but if I need to, I need to, but more so the 12 lead, especially on your cardiac patient, like a good tracing is so important for a good diagnosis. Should not be done in route. Yeah. I mean, I'll be the first one to say, like, I may or may not have had reports that had, like, 20 EKGs because I just pressed a ton mm -hmm. during the transport. But, like, the first one's usually pretty good. Also, end title, I th that deserves its own series, too. Because oh, yeah. um, uh, end title is one of the most invaluable pieces of assessment tools that we have. And uh, I think back to one of your first episodes, your vitals mm -hmm. episodes, back way back when you guys started before pre-covid once again um i think that is actually a vital now oh, absolutely yeah um and i i wish there was an easier way to make it a bls capable vital because it is something that they could use even just the numbers um but entitle has amazing capabilities to make a help us not make us help us understand what's going on with the patient yeah. Um, what What do you think the barriers are for the getting BLS to do it? The uh, actual machine to do it. Because mm. if you think about it, okay, so um, when you and I can, when we get to the hospital, do they have anything intrinsically set up in an ER room to monitor capnography? Only, only in the critical care rooms. Usually. Only in the critical care yeah, rooms. It's usually a respiratory therapist thing. Mm -hmm. We are very unique in that we have a machine that can do it. And we have a, I mean, I, we use LifePack, not trying to endorse LifePack. Uh, if, if you're listening, make them lighter, please. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it has the ability to do end title capnography. Mm -hmm. But I, in my, and it's only been, we'll say within the past five years, because that's really when end title's taken off, I think, in, in EMS is yeah. the past five years. I haven't seen anything that's, Outside of, uh, once again, not endorsing, but the Emma from uh, Physio Control or uh, Masimo that monitors end title. And with that, it's primarily geared to being on a tube. It's not, I mean, yes, if you want to have the patient hold it up to their mouth and breathe through it, you will get a reading and you'll get a, a waveform on the little screen. But there's nothing. There's nothing out there. There's no, you know, small little handheld BP device like device for that um and i think that's one of the barriers to quote-unquote entry for bls capnography you know even though it is it can be a bls vital sign it can be a bls skill intervention whatever you want to call it um hopefully hopefully also with this inclusion in that that protocol even though it's in other protocols other respiratory protocols Maybe it'll finally get 
everyone to be on board with empirical use of end title. I, I, I will be the first to admit, I probably use it maybe more than I should sometimes. But I every septic patient, every respiratory patient, every sedative administered or sedative taken by the patient gets an end title. 100%. Yeah. Um, I think that's not more than you should use it. I think that's exactly when you should use it, all of those things. Yes. I've, uh, maybe I've, I'll, I'll admit that to some people might think I use it too much. <laughs> I, you know what? I just saw an idea patent pending for Alert Medic 1. Make a nasal cannula that has color metric in it. I know. I will disagree with you on that. Why? Color metric is well, no good well, after I, I, six respirations. So how are we going to sure. make it a, an actively appropriate uh, device? Uh, I'm just thinking in terms of how are we going to convince uh, our – well, okay. I won't say that. <laughs> how are we going to convince um, – how are we going to be able to bridge the gap between BLS education and folks that make protocol to allow folks? And I think that would be a good entry thing or, or create some sort of telemetry that doesn't need a, a cardiac monitor. But that, I mean, I'm just thinking, I don't know. I like it. Put some of that reactor color stuff in there and let's make millions. <laughs> doesn't have to be the best thing in the world just has to be something people will buy I think that's a good idea I like it you should come back you should. should do you live around yeah I mean uh, uh, the one thing I'll say is uh, um, and this I, I, I think I am definitely at fault for this we, we've taken this show away from like the the physiological roots and I, and I do want to get back to that but I think it's also important to have these conversations too I yes. enjoy these conversations. I love these so conversations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What I what I want to do, and we kind of did it with this protocol. Is like root it in some sort of clinical thing like this. We did the protocol, um, but uh, I mean, if you look at what folks want to listen to or have listened to the most, it is those clinically rooted topics. Yeah. Um, what I also don't want to do is like snow folks with um, uh, content experts that are a little bit too above the level of EMS. So, um, no, I, th- I think a good next episode for us would be like that perfusion episode. Cause I, I don't think you can have an end, a good end title conversation without having a conversation about perfusion. Oh God, no. Yeah. So I think w- like a good perfusion end title discussion. It's, it is our best measurement of perfusion mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. Like it, it's real time. Yeah. Um, can it be finicky some days? Yes. But it's real time. Uh, SPO2 is not. Yeah, that, that used to be our gold standard for perfusion measurement, um, and well, we all know there's definitely pitfalls—not pitfalls, but issues—with you know assessing blood pressure as your measurement of perfusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we, we've adjusted those numbers so many times over the years. You know, I remember when I was in fire academy, I had an instructor at the EMS uh, training. And what he said to me was, or not me, but the class, he said, when you walk in a room, what's the first thing you do? You look at the patient. Blood pressure doesn't matter. It doesn't tell you anything. You look at that patient, you know if they're sick or not sick. You talk to them, you can feel their pulse, you can count their respirations. You know if they're sick or not sick. 
Ken got interrupted by a bug. Sorry. I, there, there was a bug in my face. Um, and, and that's really resonated with me, and I no longer really care about the blood pressure a whole lot. There's certain situations where math matters to me, um, but generally blood pressure is not the first thing on my mind. And it's this sub- is something we talked about in the Vital Signs yeah. episode. It's actually subjective sometimes. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could have someone that numbers don't look great, but yeah, they're perfusing, they're, they're not altered. And for all we know, because once again, we're meeting these people usually for the first time ever and the only time ever. Right. They sit at that number, and so I wouldn't go as far. For me personally, I wouldn't say that blood pressure doesn't matter to me. What oh, I, yeah. what I would say <laughs> is, no single vital sign matters to me as much as the umbrella and the 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 um, what's that? What's a good what's a good word? The collection and the the story that the the assessment. Uh, the vital signs tell me uh, I value a lot more um, than uh, the blood pressure and blood pressure is definitely not the first thing I'd be worried about. Um, uh, I, I feel like we might've talked about this when we did do the vital signs. We thing. did. You did. Um, uh, I, I feel like I'm hearing the exact same words we, coming we, out of your mouth. We had the exi- this exact conversation before. like yes. three years ago. Uh, I agree. Moose. Yeah. There, no single piece of the assessment is almighty i think it's it's a collective thing it's um ingredients to the cake the cookie the the whatever you're making without certain parts you won't get the whole picture you won't get the right taste quote unquote um and everything factors in and there's certain things that are counted in and counted out at times you know we get that soft blood pressure but we've got a great heart rate we've got a patient that's not altered that doesn't look sick, that has good skin color, condition, and temperature. You know, their capnography is good. Their lungs sound great. Hey, you know what? This blood pressure is not as important as the numbers want me to believe it to be. Let's look at everything else and bring this all into one big picture and figure out what I need to do, which all ties back into your crashing patient. You have to get your whole picture before you decide what you want to do and how you're going to do it. And if you miss one of those important pieces and they and they code or they go into respiratory arrest or get worse and you never get that, that linchpin piece, then you'll always be left wondering, is there something I could have done on seeing that would have changed this outcome? Yep. That's a great way to bring this to a close. I agree. Any final thoughts from anybody? Thanks for being on. Uh, uh, once I'd... we stop recording, we'll look at our calendars for when we can uh, do this again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, right. I I love being on. Thank you guys. Uh, like if he keeps it or not, I love to pontificate and talk about EMS. So thanks thanks for having me. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. And listen, what we'll do is uh, what I what, what I want to start telling our guests is, uh, ne- like start thinking about who you would bring from your like network on the show, right? And I, I want to start doing that because I think that allows us to get second order third order or folks that yep. we don't directly interact with but may have because may have perspectives that we don't even think about so start thinking about that and then um you can close out if you want okay well thank you everybody for listening to alert medic one please have a great night check us out facebook twitter check us out on uh if our anybody website, wants to make our website for free let me know <laughs> i'll write you a letter recommendation we also have a subreddit. Oh yeah, we do have a subreddit. 
reddit.com slash r alert medic one. Check it out. There's can, nothing there. You can be a mod if you want. You can be a mod. We'll uh, pay you nothing. It's great. It's a good deal. So thank you everybody for listening. Please uh, like, sub subscribe, give us a rating and review, and have a great day. Or thank night. you all. Or night. From a, see, I say I say night normally, and you give me a hard time. So today I said day, and now he gives me a hard have time. Have a good life. Be you. And be the greatest you you can be. Goodbye. <laughs> that was good. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Oh,